Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we'll hear from two African-American women who challenge stereotypes about Appalachia through their writing. We hear from poet Nikki Giovanni. You have to say, are we approaching, are we engaged in the questions of our time? And are we, are we working, uh, if not to the best of our ability, to some of our ability to try to solve it? And writer Crystal Wilkinson, one of the founding members of a group known as the Appalachian Poets. It's meant to be a story that makes someone's spine straight and makes them proud of who they are. And a punk musician discovers a legendary luthier and learns to build banjos. I just felt that like it was important for this like rad like 97 year old man to know that like somebody is carrying on like this tradition in the same workshop that he was. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Lots of folks have picked up new hobbies during the pandemic or renewed old ones. Maybe you know someone who started knitting or baking or mountain biking. Well, for many of us, those hobbies have a way of turning into passions that play out over years and sometimes decades. Today, we're sharing stories about people with different passions. Poetry, music, making hot dogs, to name a few but who have all touched others with their dedication to their craft. We begin in Harlan County, Kentucky, where a 20-year-old punk rocker picked up the banjo, and that led to a search for a 97-year-old banjo maker. As part of our Inside Appalachia Folkways series, reporter Nicole Musgrave has the story. Southeast Kentucky is home to a vibrant punk rock music scene. That's the band Lips from Harlan. They used to play out a couple times a month, but they had to stop playing live shows because of COVID-19. All I'd been doing was like booking shows and like touring and like playing with like bands and then like everything I was doing, I couldn't do anymore. Bradford Harris is the guitarist and lead vocalist of the band. But Bradford also recently started playing old time music. In this part of Kentucky, it's pretty common for punk musicians to also play old time. And during the pandemic, Bradford started messing with the banjo. It wasn't until like this year that I actually like really started appreciating it. One day, Bradford was looking up tunes on YouTube and came across a video of someone talking about making banjos. Bradford's dad runs the woodshop at the local community college. So Bradford got the idea that the two of them should build a banjo. I'm not an instrument maker, you know. I'm a cabinet and furniture guy. That's Bradford's dad, Steve. To figure out how to build a banjo, Bradford ordered a kit from the internet, and Steve pulled out his set of Foxfire books to reference the chapter on banjo making. Then the two of them got to work. He knows so much about like woodworking that like I can't even fathom to know about, and like I know stuff about instruments that he wouldn't even like consider. The two of them built their first banjo this past summer, and they haven't stopped since. Bradford even quit a job at a local car wash to focus on building banjos. They've joined online banjo-building forums and Facebook groups, and they've connected with banjo players and makers from around the area. But Bradford stumbled upon one of their best sources of instruction while using a sander at the shop one day. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see, like, a banjo neck, like, hanging out of the shelf, and I was like, I will worry about this later. I, I just saw something cool. Bradford went to investigate and uncovered a stockpile of handmade tools, banjo templates, and detailed handwritten notes about building instruments. They'd been left behind by a guy who used to work in the shop. His name was Al Cornett. Al retired years ago after working at the college as an instrument builder and teacher. He would write down things that I would have never thought about. You could tell, like, he was writing down, like, years of experience and, like, his drawings are, like, superb, and although he hadn't been in that shop for 15 years, like, he's been, like, one of the most monumental people in, like, me learning how to, like, build. Bradford knew that a luthier had previously worked in the shop at the college, but didn't know much else. I had just heard about him, and, you know, and somebody was like, I doubt he's still alive. Uh, and I was like, well, I mean, you know, it's worth checking. Bradford started asking around the college to see what people knew about Al and where he might be. But all anybody knew was that if Al was still around, he was probably in his 90s. Undeterred, 
Bradford posted on social media, looking for more information. And somebody was like, yeah, I know Al, I go like check on him every now and then. And I was like, this is it. I was like, the search begins. With confirmation that Al was in fact still living, Bradford was determined to meet him. Finally, after several weeks of searching and trying to get in touch with Al. How, how old were you when you started building instruments? Bradford was able to visit with him. They sat down in Al's living room, and a friend recorded the meeting on video. I started in 1977. Awesome. So, uh, what was it? so you said you first started building dulcimers? I started building dulcimers, yeah. I have the first one I built. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. During the visit, Al talked about his experiences as a luthier, and he shared some tricks of the trade with Bradford. Al even talked about some of the more challenging projects he worked on, like the one time he built a fiddle. What's your favorite instrument that you built? I worked seven years on the fiddle. Al picked up the fiddle he spent seven years making. Is that, have you made more fiddles than that one? No. <laughs> that was the last fiddle Al ever made. It takes, it takes too long. In pre-pandemic times, when punk shows in southeast Kentucky were still going loud and strong, Bradford wouldn't have thought they'd be tracking down someone like Al. If you would have told me, like, you know, a year ago that I would be playing, like, old-time music and doing, like, these, like, old-time history stuff and going and meeting old, like, banjo players and stuff, I would have been like, no, nah, probably not. But I also wouldn't have thought that there would have been, like, a pandemic, so. <laughs> and Bradford was grateful to get the chance to thank Al in person. I just felt that, like, it was important for this, like, rad, like, 97-year-old man to know that, like, somebody is carrying on, like, this tradition in the same workshop that he was. Bradford's eager to book and play punk shows again. But for now, at least, they'll keep making banjos. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Harlan County, Kentucky. To see some of Bradford's banjos, you can search for Harris Banjo Works on Instagram. You can also find Bradford's punk band on Bandcamp at lipspunk.bandcamp.com. We'll also post links on our website, wvpublic.org. Poet Nikki Giovanni says there are many reasons she loves Appalachia, the region where she was born. An activist for civil rights and social justice, Giovanni's helped give voice to black Appalachians for half a century. Reporter Liz McCormick spoke with Nikki Giovanni about her love for Appalachia and about growing up in Knoxville, Tennessee. From the Inside Appalachia archives, let's listen to their conversation, which begins with Giovanni reading one of her poems called Knoxville, Tennessee. I always like summer best. You can eat fresh corn from Daddy's garden and okra and greens and cabbage and lots of barbecue and buttermilk and homemade ice cream at the church picnic and listen to gospel music outside at the church homecoming and go to the mountains with your grandmother and go barefooted and be warm all the time, not only when you go to bed and sleep. I'm a Knoxvillian by birth, and I, I spent... Uh, most of my summers with my grandmother, and then I actually moved in uh, with my grandparents. So, yeah, I, I love this. I love that poem, too. And can you talk a little bit about, in terms of Appalachia, um, how does this poem mean to you? I just love it because, you know, there was always a garden. You always had something uh, that, that you were, that, that your parents were growing. And I grew up being used to or having, uh, having gardens. And, uh, of course, I grew up also cooking with my grandmother. And grandmother would, you know, we'd go out and pick a tomato or go out and pick some peppers or, you know, we'd always have something that we were putting from the garden into the food that we were actually eating. So it always made uh, sense to me. I don't do, and I guess I shouldn't say that, but I don't do fast food. I don't, uh, I know that whatever I do with a drive through in a car is not food, so I don't do that, you know. Um, and so we don't have your poem, uh, When Gone Made Mountains, to recite. But could you talk a little bit about it? And if you remember any specific parts of it that stick out to you, if you could just talk a little bit about that poem. Well, I'm actually a, um, a history major, so I'm always been I've always been interested in how things evolve. And in, always, and, and in thinking about West Virginia particularly, uh, we cannot look at the history of the United States without recognizing the importance of West Virginia seceding from Virginia. 
the Civil War would have been an entirely different affair if the uh, Union had lost control of these mountains, and and we know that. And uh, I, I just, uh, when God made mountains, uh, I, I wanted to deal with what, why he was deciding to do that, aside from fresh water and stuff. He had to make a place, and, and of course you can't talk about the United States without talking about runaway slaves. And without these mountains, you know, this was the one place, West Virginia, that what became West Virginia, was the one place that a runaway slave, let's say you were coming up Alabama, you could come up and you could follow the water, and you could follow the water north. And in following the water north, you're going to get up here. Actually, as you know, West Virginia is quite rich, and yet West Virginians have not benefited from that. Almost everybody in the world has benefited from the richness of, of this state, from, from its wood to its uh, forest to its oil to, to any number of things that are here. And yet West Virginians have not benefited from that. What was the initial kind of push for you to decide to express yourself through poetry in, um, in your, what you stand for, in your activism, and just expressing yourself. Why was it poetry that you chose? Uh, I really don't know. It's, it's just um, all I really know is what I dream and what I think. And, of course, people of my generation, we, we all, you know, picketed and we did the things that, that one should do. And that was a good thing to do, but... I also just had these dreams, and, and I wanted to share them, and I had these ideas, and I, I kept thinking, something is missing. We have a um, uh, bastardized history of West Virginia that has to be corrected, and it's time that West Virginians realize that we can't let other people say what our history is. We have to look at what it is. And I know the same thing is true of black Americans, that we can't just look at what was done to us. We have to look at and what good came out of this. And I think we can, I don't think that, we can show that. And we show it through some things that are really quite easy. We show it through the banjo, because the banjo is endemic to uh, West Africa. And so the only way that anybody in Appalachia can play a banjo that knows the banjo is that Africans or those who were enslaved and escaping came up here. We know things like okra, you know, came from Africa. And of course, I live in Virginia. I teach at Virginia Tech. And Virginia prides itself on being the peanut capital of the world. Well, peanuts are West African. <laughs> and so whatever Virginia has learned about peanuts, they learned that through the people they enslaved. Continuing with kind of the idea of uh, with civil rights and, and, and activism and race relations, um, looking at today with kind of the things that have been going on, uh, police brutality, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the debate over the Confederate flag and much more. Can you share some of your thoughts on what's going on today in our country? Well, clearly some of it is sad. I have never understood the reason uh, that policemen need guns. I, I still don't. And I, you know, oh, well, the crooks will do whatever, whatever. But you don't need power and authority. Nobody does. And I, I have disliked the idea of policemen having guns because they already have authority. And somebody could call in and say, well, you know, Nikki, if the cops don't have guns, somebody will shoot them. But if the cops don't have guns, then the citizens will protect them. There's no, there's no question about that. And when we start to look at, at the inner cities particularly, we know, or we should know, that one of the things we want is we want the policemen, or the police people, I should say, to have a partner. We, we know that we don't want just the white policemen to be out there, a couple of them, and then they're shooting people for no reason. Everybody's upset. We want a white and a black. We want a man and a woman. We want a, a, a continual uh, mix of who these people are, and as I said, we want them to be without um, without guns. The Confederate flag is, is uh, it's uh, a segregationist flag. This, what, what is being called the Confederate flag came up uh, actually as a response to the civil rights, which shows both stupidity about who we who we are as a nation and who we are as a people. If I had my way, starting first grade, I'm sure first grade, every American child would learn another language. And I think that every American child, and, and I'm just not trying to speak for the world, but I think that every American child should know how to swim. It, it's just something that uh, we should make sure that every every kid in America, and I don't know if we have to even wait till first grade for that one, you know, and we need to get those kids there to teach them how to swim because these are skills. I would like to see every American kid starting 
kindergarten, first grade, play some sort of instrument. I think it'd be great. Uh, and whatever instrument they want, whether it's a piano, whether it's a saxophone, it doesn't matter. And in a generation, we would have an American child that could go any place on earth and be at home. Do you think compared to when you started in the civil rights movement back in the 60s, how do you feel about of today, what's going on today to what you were working on back then? Life is always about the going forward. And I, th- I think that, that I, I grew up in segregation. And it was really, um, uh, it was a, I had to laugh. I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, I don't know now, five years ago, some, you know, it's been a while. And I was invited to speak at the Tennessee Theater, Tennessean Theater, which is there on Gay Street. And it's now historic. But it was so wonderful because I remember when I wasn't doing the era of segregation, you weren't allowed. But you can't compare what we did 100 years ago, what we did 50 years ago, and how we're doing it. You have to say, are we approaching, are we uh, um, engaged in the questions of our time? And are we, are we working, uh, if not to the best of our ability, to some of our ability to try to solve it? Mm-hmm. I, think that that's, uh, I think that has to be dealt with. I'm a big fan of black lives matter because a lot of people have been casual about black lives. So someone, one lady up in Connecticut said white lives matter too, but nobody ever said, nobody said that it didn't. The, 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 we've been casual about what happens with black kids and with black, uh, with black people. We, we can look at our prisons and see we have just too many people in prison. And, and the, the thing that makes America, and I don't think we're great now, but I think we are on the cusp of a greatness. The thing that makes us potentially great is that we are allowing human freedom. Mm-hmm. That we are, in, 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 in 21st century, we're saying, yeah, you should be able to make some decisions about your life, and I should step back as long as you are a law-abiding citizen. You have a right to live your life, and it's so, it's so basic. It has nothing to do with what other people think, because when other people don't like it, they don't have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that simple. In your speech at Shepherd University, you had mentioned um, Appalachian happiness is very important. And I wanted to ask um, you to explore that a little bit more and tell me why you feel that way. Well, the thing that I admire, I don't, want to, I don't know if the term is going to be most, but certainly way at the top of my list, is I admire the fact that you stand for freedom. And I admire the fact that we in Appalachia, and I, I'm going to include myself in that, have a concept of enough. And that's a concept that we are going to have to actually be able to share and spread across this country because right now nobody has an idea of enough, which is why people are, are really being crazy to say, I want to be a billionaire. But actually a million dollars is enough, mm-hmm. maybe even something lower than that. But we in Appalachia have an idea of enough, mm-hmm. that this is... I'm satisfied. I'm pleased. I have a family. I have a, a decent house. I'm warm. You know, whatever it is, we have a concept of enough. And that idea that Appalachia brings to us, and he, he, Appalachia brings it to our country, that idea is, is what has to permeate. It has to permeate America. And I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this already, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. Do you feel like you're an Appalachian? Well, I'm, I'm a Knoxvillian by birth, so yes, I am. I, I, I don't have any problem with being an Appalachian, but I'm also an American, and I'm also an, 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 an earthling. And when we look at West Virginia, we are also looking at the future because almost everything that has to do with space has come from people from this state. And I think that, again, sitting in, in, at night in the dark sky watching it, you know, this is where the dreams come from. And so our rocket people, I mean, you can look at how many of our rocket people are West Virginians who have come from here. They said, well, some want to be an engineer, some want to be poets. You need both. If we're going to go to Mars, you're going to need both. Again, that was poet, activist, and children's book author Nikki Giovanni speaking with reporter Liz McCormick in 2015. Giovanni teaches writing at Virginia Tech and lives in Blacksburg, Virginia. That's not too far from where I've spent the last two decades, and I've got to say, Giovanni is a legend in this area. Um, She's a national treasure for many reasons, but one that speaks to me was her response after the 2007 mass shooting at Virginia Tech. I was a reporter at the Roanoke Times when that happened in 2007, and I will always remember 
Giovanni's poem from Virginia Tech's Convocation the day after the shooting. We will prevail. We will prevail. We will prevail. We are Virginia Tech. Giovanni's writing and activism across the country and here in Appalachia began in the 1960s, giving voice to people too often left out in conversations about our region. Next, we're going to hear from a woman who is continuing that work, along with a group of writers who call themselves the Afro-Latchian Poets. Crystal Wilkinson grew up in Kentucky with her grandparents. Back in 2019, she spoke with Liz McCormick about her experience being black in Appalachia and how it's influenced her passion to write. Wilkinson began by reading one of her short stories from her first book, titled Blackberries, Blackberries. This short story is called The Wanderer. Many a night, Javeda would lie on her back and be lulled by katydids and whippoorwills, speaking to one another in the pitch of the Casey Creek night. A cool breeze would rustle her nightgown, and she would lie still and awake, paying close attention to the quiet of the darkness, the leaves rustling in the air like a woman's skirt tail, the dampness of the night, the chirping of a far-off bird, She'd make hand puppet shadows on the yellowed wallpaper as the moon shined its fullness into her bedroom window. Sometimes, with her nose pressed against a mason jar full of lightning bugs, Javeda would watch the blue-green fluorescent off and on glow and set to thinking. She would wonder why white folks seem to have life so easy and why black folks seem to have so many stumbling blocks. After all, as Granny Teen said, we was traveling through the exact same life as them. Sometimes she even wondered what it'd be like if she rose up in the morning a white girl, a white girl like Paula who lived at the end of the gravel road, all fragile-like with bone-straight hair, jet black like Brownie's mane and tail, like some fragile china doll, spending her time sitting somewhere just looking pretty with people both grown and children making a fool over her, and that hair she got, all straight and easy, on a comb. Javeda wondered how'd Paula feel wedged between the sturdy legs of her grandnan or granny teen while her locks were being coaxed into behaving. Javeda guessed the flip side of that coin was that maybe, just maybe, Paula would never know the love that comes out of them hour-long combing spells, be it grandnan or mama or Granny Teen, who was doing the combing. That's how Javeda got to the heart of all her women folk. That's where souls got transferred. That's where knowledge was passed on. She liked that time between sturdy black legs feeling the love being greased into her scalp. And what kind of patience could a 15-minute hair combing learn you anyhow? Javeda guessed if she didn't wake up black as pitch every morning that maybe, just maybe, there wouldn't be no need to be digging that deep all the way down to the soul for strength. She figured that if her skin wasn't blue-black, she'd have to learn to laugh from her mouth and not from her belly. Javeda decided that she wasn't even sure if she'd appreciate the beans and turnips on the table if she didn't help pick them for herself. And Granny Teen and Grandnan always said that a girl who won't work don't deserve no good, hard-working man finally decided that every morning God blessed her with she'd wake up black so she'd have to learn to deal with it, everything that came with it. After her long spell of mind-wandering, she'd roll over in her bed, bid the lightning bugs good night, and try to be thankful for being black as the sky. What was the message you really wanted to convey in that particular short story? Wow, it's been so long since I wrote that, and, I, and it's a piece that I rarely read, so I'm glad that you asked me to read it. Well, the whole collection, I have to talk about the collection overall, um, is about African-American women in Appalachia and learning to be proud of who they are if they weren't already. So each story so, sort of focus on, focuses in on black women's lives in Appalachia, and so what I was trying to do was sort of make the invisible visible. And, you know, it happens all the time. The Appalachian stereotypes are rampant uh, throughout the country. And then I think if you're African-American on top of that, people don't think we exist. It happens all the time, no matter where I'm at in the world. 
And I tell people I'm from Appalachia and they go, what? <laughs> really? Are you, you're from Appalachia? I didn't realize that there were black people in Appalachia. So it's meant to be a story that makes someone's spine straight and makes them proud of who they are. In looking at all of your writing, is that sort of why you started to write as an Appalachian writer to sort of drive that message? Um, yes. I mean, I think in the end, that was the reason why I write. I think in the beginning, it was just sort of a calling. You know, I could almost compare it to being called to preach or called to be a musician. I've just always been a writer since I was a child. And before I started dealing with more complicated themes, I was just writing because I thought I had to. And in fact, at the beginning of my writing, I wasn't writing about Appalachia at all. I was just writing really trying to write about New York, places that I hadn't been as a child. So it was always thinking outward during those early years. And then after I went to college and I began to think about where I'm from and no longer in a shameful way of being ashamed of being country, is what we called ourselves, then I began to explore the wonder and the magnificence of, of being from Appalachia and began to use those themes in a particular way. How do you feel the world's perception of Appalachia is these days? And do you feel like the stereotypes are having less of an impact? Well, I think the image is, is harmful. We, it's um, amazing to me. I was doing some math and realized that I've been a part of the Appalachian poets for almost 30 years now. And so we've been doing this work for almost 30 years. Appalachian Studies Association and all these other organizations have done work for even longer. Like we've all been working so hard to combat stereotypes of Appalachia. And then um, it's disheartening somewhat to find that they still exist, that people still think of the region only as one in one particular way. And they think of it as negatively and any sort of Appalachian stereotype that you can think of. There are people in other regions of the country that still think of us that way. So it's painful, and I feel like we're all sort of still having to preach the gospel. I'm hoping that at some point um, we won't have to, but we still have a lot of work to do toward that. And kind of looking at tackling those challenges of stereotypes, what are some ways that we can do that in terms of celebrating Appalachia? Well, I think just continue to tell our stories to show the world our humanity, because that's what it's about. Like when you when you place someone in a category of a, a stereotype, you're not seeing people as real human beings with complexity and originality and humanity. So keep putting our stories out in, in various ways, whatever those individual stories are, I think will continue to show the diversity of the region. You know, we're all very tight-knit, but it's not one monolithic, one-eyed view of the world and that we are very rich, very diverse, very complex, and filled with humanity and, and love. That was author Crystal Wilkinson, who grew up in Kentucky and is one of the founding members of a group of black writers called the Afrolatian Poets. She has a new book called Perfect Black, set to be released from the University of Kentucky Press in August. Up next, we'll hear from a man who helped pioneer the skiing industry in West Virginia, and we'll remember Russell Yan, known throughout the mountain state as a notorious hot dog seller. That's coming up in just a minute. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.
Skiing took off in West Virginia in the 1950s, when a ski area was developed on Cabin Mountain in Canaan Valley. Today, there are six ski resorts. John Lutz, a native of Parkersburg, was a huge part of developing the industry in the state. He's been recognized as one of the country's top ski instructors. He developed one of the first blind skiing programs, brought a professional ski racing series to West Virginia, and created opportunities for thousands of people to ski in our region. But before all that, Lutz left West Virginia for a bit, skiing in Vermont and out west. But as he told my co-host Caitlin Tan, he found himself missing home. So I decided to come back to West Virginia, and I drove up to Canaan to check it out, take a couple of runs, drink a beer. And apparently I must have had too much to drink because when I woke (laughs) up 18 years later, uh, I was married, had three children, (laughs) and was a ski area manager. It was kind of a whirlwind. But um, anyway, that's that's how I got into it. I started out as an apprentice instructor at Canaan and uh, ended up staying there for almost 20 years and then moved over to uh, Timberline and worked there for the next 27 years. But um, I've, I've been in the ski industry for just about 50 years now. And wow. that's, that's it in a nutshell. So, John, you said you went north and then you went out west initially, which both areas have completely different kind of skiing and snow opportunities than what you might find in West Virginia. What brought you back? What made you decide to to stay in West Virginia? Well, basically, uh, I just love West Virginia. It's my home and uh, this is where I wanted to live. So I came back and, you know, uh, the fact that skiing has started was a, a main part of that. Otherwise, who knows, I might be uh, out west today. <laughs> you were involved in with the ski racing teams, correct? Um, yes, I started uh, the junior ski racing in Kinane, um in the, in the late 70s, and that program is still running today. There have been hundreds and hundreds of uh, young skiers gone through that program and uh, have ended up racing, you know, practically all over the country. And so, John, from what I understand, I mean, actually, West Virginia could be a great place for learning how to ski race. I mean, generally, you want ice or snow. And and I mean, Lindsey Vaughn, the, one of the top U.S. women's downhill ski racers, she learned on a tiny little icy hill in Minnesota. So from what I understand, one doesn't necessarily need these big mountains in places like Colorado, right? No, you don't. Uh, Lindsey Vaughn grew up skiing 250 vertical feet. <clears throat> Timberline here in Canaan has 1,000 vertical. Snowshoe has 1,500 vertical. Uh, there are some steep uh, trails at both of those ski areas. Uh, as far as being icy, it's not as icy as New England, but it's a lot icier <laughs> than out west. Yeah, for sure. I, I, so I moved to West Virginia just a couple years ago, and that was the first thing I realized. Um, so how has skiing changed over the past 50 years you've been involved, um, specifically in West Virginia? You know, the skiing was pretty primitive compared to what we have today. In my days, uh, you know, the grooming was basically a modified tractor with a four-speed and it pulled uh, chain-link fence or uh, rollers to groom the slopes. And, you know, that was in the early 70s. And uh, Wow. That's... uh, you know the skiers have changed too. The um, back uh, in the fifties, sixties, and seventies, and even before, skiing was one big fraternity. I mean, if you <laughs> you skied, you were a member of that fraternity, and you know it's that's all you needed to know about someone. That's <laughs> changed a little bit now. <laughs> it's not quite so personal. But as far as climate change, uh. The last five years, 
have definitely been warmer than anything I remember in uh, 50 years of skiing. I always used to say I've never seen three bad winters in a row. Well, we had five bad ones in a row. Uh, but this year so far, I mean, the skiing has been excellent. Uh, just, uh, I'm really happy to see the operators and the skiers get, get this kind of a winter again. And for our region, and specifically people south of us, I mean, West Virginia, like you said, I mean, it's prime skiing. I mean, it's some of the best skiing that people in the south can access or be able to drive to at least. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, exactly. There's uh, quite a bit of skiing in the south. But, you know, none of them have the skiing that West Virginia has, a combination of, of um, how far north it is compared to North Carolina and how much higher the elevation is in a lot of other ski areas um, give West Virginia a leg up over every other southern skiing area. So it's, uh, you know, as far as <clears throat> anything in the south, West Virginia is by far the best. I would put it up against anything south of New England and upstate New York. It's uh, wow. skiing here is definitely is quality. And John, can you kind of talk about? Um, at least in my experience, it feels like there is kind of a magic to skiing. Almost, you know, it's like you're floating downhill on on skis, you know, and, and it's, there's nothing quite like it. It's such a unique feeling. Well, I mean, it is a one of a kind feeling. It's a, it's really freedom. It's probably as close as uh, you can come to flying, you know, without being a bird or being in a plane. And it's much more free than being in a plane. Um, It's, you know, to me, there's, there's nothing else in sport like it. And it's just, I mean, it's so beautiful out here in the winter. It's, you know, you get a, a cold day and, you know, there's hoarfrost uh, sparkling in the sun and the, the air and there's rime on the trees and everything is just glistening and white. And if the sun's out, it's the, uh, the sky is blue. I mean, the whole world is just glistening uh, white and blue. And it's just, you know, the cold air on your face. It, uh, it's really exhilarating. Like most festivals and events, the annual Fashnot celebration in Helvetia, West Virginia was canceled this year due to safety concerns from COVID-19. Normally, on the Saturday before Lent begins, hundreds of people gather in this tiny town to frighten away old man winter. Seven years ago, our producer Roxy Todd was a fledgling radio reporter, and she produced this story at the Fashnot Festival. Let's listen back. On Saturday morning, I woke to the smell of curry and countless other spices wafting up to my room above the hute, where I was staying. And as I sat down for coffee beside the crackling wood stove, the smells grew more intense, and I could hear something frying in the kitchen. One of the cooks was frying the Morgan Henley chicken in olive oil, so I went to have a closer look. I can't give the spices away. I can say this much. It's a curry chicken. It's marinated, and then Henry fries it, and it's, uh, we bake it, and that keeps it nice and moist. <laughs> Debbie has worked at the Hute since 1977, and like many here, her family roots go back to Switzerland. Mostly, uh, Debbie makes her homemade bread, and she's made it for years, and then Wilma Sanders makes our whole wheat bread, and the sausage is what a lot of people love, and we get that from Campbell's Market, shoulder sausage, very lean. And then we have nine dif- different spices that go into it, grated onion and a whole bunch of other things that I won't tell you about. It's wonderful, and people love it. Um, I'm Heidi Farner Mayu Arnett. My mom was Eleanor Mayu. Since her mother, Eleanor Mayu, passed away three years ago, Heidi and four others in her family have been keeping the restaurant going just as before. And we're, we're not, we don't care, we don't want to make a dime. We just want to continue this. 
and the staff is amazing. They've been working with us for years. Eleanor, she worked with the recipes over the years to get them where she wanted them. Quite a lady, wasn't she, Melissa? <laughs> yeah, we miss her. But we're doing what she taught us to do, and she worked hard to get, you know, to get us where we're at today. <laughs> Preserving the old ways of cooking Swiss foods wasn't the only tradition that Eleanor Mayhew helped inspire here. Bringing back Fasnacht was also part of her creative vision for reviving Helvetia. Fasnacht is something that happened many years ago that they always celebrated. What they used to do, I think, is go to farm to farm, and they used to have a glass of wine and a rosette or a hoseblatz and go to the next house and it was like a party. So many of the local families were musicians and so they would play songs and hang out and it was a lot of fun. That was one of the things also that my mom kind of wanted to get going back again because it's something that they used to celebrate. So we had people sleeping on the, on the dining room table, under the dining room table, and my mom was all for it. She loved, she loved kids. After dinner, hundreds of people slip on their costumes and oversized papier-mâché masks and parade through the small town towards the dance hall. In circles and pairs, weaving beneath the scarecrow-esque effigy of Old Man Winter, they dance for hours. It's always a hard winter here because we're, we're in the mountains, so burning him is really therapeutic. <laughs> Everything on Old Man Winter gets burned every year and square dancing and that they love it so much and it's a great thing to be a part of. So yeah, we love it. At midnight, someone cuts down Old Man Winter from the ceiling. Hallie Martin of Elkins Middle School is given the honor this year of hauling Old Man Winter onto the bonfire amid cheers and howls from the crowd. In a way, this is West Virginia's Mardi Gras. It's 40 degrees and Old Man Winter has been temporarily put to shame. Some of the local people begin to sing John Denver's Country Roads, and somebody throws a dead wild boar they found nearby onto the fire, and the flames grow higher. Maybe the burning of wild boar and the singing of Country Roads will become new traditions blending with all the others of Helvetia. It's for the next generation to decide what comes next here, anyway. You know what I like about Helvetia is that you can be who you are. I love Helvetia people, and I'm Pickens people and Czar people. They're the purity of just being who you are. It's a freedom. You know, you're very free out here to be who you are. If you haven't listened to Roxy's story about the origins of country roads, make sure to give it a listen. To me, it's the definitive word on the origins of West Virginia's unofficial state anthem. Find it at wvpublic.org. If you live in West Virginia and care about food, you probably know DeCarlo's in Wheeling, where they serve pizzas topped with cold cheese. Maybe you've been to Richwood, claims to be the ramp capital of the world. And you probably know that when it comes to hot dog joints, Yan's Hot Dogs in Fairmont is on a level all its own. Russell Yan, the longtime owner of the iconic lunch spot, died on January 15th. Reporter Zach Harold has this story about Yan's life and legacy. Yan's Hot Dogs in Fairmont, West Virginia is a tiny place. There are only nine seats at the lunch counter inside. And yet this hole in the wall, which doesn't even have a sign out front, has a huge devoted following. There are regulars who go there for lunch every day. There's even a story about a homesick West Virginia boy stationed in Korea who had his mom cold pack the dogs and ship them overseas. But if you wanted a hot dog from Russell Yan, there were some rules to follow. The hot dogs came with three toppings, mustard, diced onion, and Yan's special spicy sauce. You could ask Yan to leave any of those things off, but for goodness sakes, don't ask for anything extra. I mean, you would never say ketchup. 
U.S. Magistrate Judge Michael Alloy used to practice law in Fairmont, so he knows the rules well. If you said ketchup, uh, you might as well just leave the place. I mean, all the regulars, their heads would pop up, and <laughs> it would, you just didn't say ketchup. And it may be a felony in Marion County to, to have requested coleslaw on the hot dog. Russell was so adamant about making these hot dogs and making them his way that he'd get kind of gruff if customers tried any funny business. After he passed, the Marion County Convention and Visitors Bureau shared a photo of him that kind of captures this. It's a photo of Russell standing behind the counter at Yan's just like he did every day. He's a smallish guy with white hair and glasses, dressed in a white polo shirt and a white apron. There are 18 hot dog buns laid out in front of him, ready to be filled and served to customers. And he looks, honestly, a little miffed that someone has taken his photo. But really, that gruffness was just Russell's sense of humor. Marion County Sheriff Jimmy Riffle worked for Russell for over 20 years and got to see the man behind the act. If there was a fire in a community, uh, usually when the firefighters got back to station, there would be hot dogs and drinks for them. Uh, he had a routine of every Tuesday sending hot dogs and drinks to the West Virginia State Police because that was the day back then when they gave drivers exams. And a lot of times they didn't get out of the office for lunch. If there was a bad wreck or the or the police department's route and the uh, rescue squad's route, you know, that whenever they got back to station, there was always something for them. Russell showed that kind of courtesy to all his customers. If you'd gone in there more than once or twice, he he would remember your order. Customers would just come in, sit down, and we knew what they wanted. He'd make them. I'd set them in front of them. He was known to occasionally sneak Little Debbie snack cakes in with kids' orders, and he took the hot dogs on vacation with him. He used to make trips to Disney World in Florida. He would take stuff to make hot dogs there and make them for the staff and the workers in, in Disney World. Aside from those Florida vacations, Russell was a constant presence at his restaurant, even as he got older and his daughter Kathy returned home to help him run the place. I called her up at the restaurant to talk about her dad. Well, truly, he didn't know anything else. You know, he came from an Italian family that worked hard, and uh, he never really had any hobbies or anything, so he always said, "What, what would I do if I stayed home? I wouldn't do anything. You know, I wouldn't have anything to do. So he came to work, and he, he loved it here. This was, this was his home. You know, this is what he knew. And he enjoyed the people. And, uh, you know, it's just, just uh, you know, the type of person he was and, and the background he came from. Then, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Russell, 89 at the time, started staying home to keep from getting sick. But he still made time to pass along the restaurant's secrets to Kathy including the recipe for Yan's famous sauce, which until recently was known only to Russell. I moved back here with my dad when my mother passed away, and then my promise to him was that I would keep it going. So um, that's what I'm doing. The restaurant wasn't open for several days following Russell's death. A sign hung on the door, closed, family emergency. Per his wishes, there was no public funeral. But by the end of January, Kathy had the place back open, and ever since, Yans has been swamped by folks coming by to get a few hot dogs and pay their respects to her dad. I can't even begin to tell you how busy we've been. And then that's the, the people outpouring their love back in. I don't think he, you know, he knew the impact that he made on the community. He just did what he thought was the right thing. And everybody thought he was gruff and had a rough exterior, but... He was really, really a soft at heart. He's, you, you didn't forget him once you met him. That's Sheriff Riffle again. He'll be missed, uh, you know, not just by family and friends, but, you know, the community in general. It's, it's just one of those things when somebody passes that there won't be another one. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold. Let 
Thanks to Zach Harold for that story and his work to get the word out about Appalachia's deep-rooted hot dog culture. Russell Yan's insistence on the rules for eating his hot dogs may sometimes have come off as eccentric. I know my eight-year-old son, for example, would not appreciate his no-ketchup policy. But I appreciate how his dedication to his craft, making a specific style of hot dog that's unique to him, made Yan's hot dogs a local legend among hot dog lovers. That theme extends through all of today's stories. How pursuing a passion can touch others, build community, and create memories that outlast individual lives. I hope, listeners, that during this pandemic, you've been able to spend time chasing whatever it is that you love doing. I'm Mason Adams. Until next time, thank you for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Bradford Harris, Lips, and Anna and Elizabeth. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Sandra Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at in Appalachia. Or find my individual account at Mason Adams, M-A-S-O-N-A-T-O-M-S. You can also send us an email at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. While there, you can subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.